0: Good morning, church. Go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. This is part two for this text. And the title of this sermon is Adultery Through Divorce and Remarriage. Adultery Through Divorce and Remarriage. And so we're continuing our quest through the gospel of Matthew. And so when you are at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. This is what our Lord says. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just uh, come before you, and we ask you to be with us. First, we thank you for giving us your word. You give us your word because you love us, and you want to conform us to you. And and to write your word on our hearts. And so we pray that will happen this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible so that I don't mess it up. Uh, Lord, there's some hard stuff in this, especially for our culture. And so I just pray, Lord, that uh, just your word would go forth clearly, um, that your people would be edified, convicted where they need to be. But in everything, Lord, that we're just drawn closer to you and that that you get all the glory. We pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they'll be saved today and come to know you and, and receive your forgiveness, God. And so we just pray all this. And again, we pray it all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray all of it. Amen. Please have a seat. According to the statistics, one out of every two American marriages ends in divorce, This seems to demonstrate that Americans do not value marriage very much at all. Now, this began back in the late 1960s when progressives started calling for no-fault divorce. Before that time, the only way you could really get a divorce was you had to prove the unfaithfulness of your spouse. But the progressives argued that that was inhumane. And so they pushed for the legalization of no-fault divorce where people could divorce for whatever reason they want. America was promised that this was the humane thing to do, and that families would actually be healthier, and that kids would walk away with less psychological damage, and that the divorced people would remain good friends. That's what they promised. So eventually, no-fault divorce became the law of the land, and it did not hold true on a single one of its promises. It has devastated the children of our society. We now have three generations worth of statistics showing how the climbing divorce rate affects kids. For example, the children of divorced parents have statistically a much more difficult time forming romantic attachments. They have, on average, lower income, lower education, way more mental health problems and diagnoses, poorer relationships with their parents, especially their fathers, higher suicide rates, and more problematic marriages themselves. In fact, one of the great predictors of whether or not a marriage will end in divorce is if one of the two people have a parent that was divorced. Because of the sad state of marriage and divorce and all of that, the millennial generation of them, over 60% prefer cohabitation. They don't even want to get married. They just want to shack up. And it's even worse with uh, Generation Z. And so it seems that the divorce culture is trying to eradicate marriage. And our society doesn't even seem to notice or care about the negative effects Although I will have to say this, I was surprised that earlier this week, the New York Times did run an opinion piece by Nicholas Kristof, where finally, one of these progressives is seeing this, but it's still not getting a lot of attention. So my question for us, though, is what about Christians? We see that the world is just oblivious to what's happening with this, but what about Christians? Well, the statistics show that there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, and they see nothing wrong with frivolous divorce and remarriage. Since it's normal for the culture, they think it's normal for us, and this is not good. And so the reason I bring this up this morning is because in our text, Jesus touches on this subject in a way that is truly countercultural, countercultural to his culture 2,000 years ago, as well as our American culture today. He is presenting divorce and remarriage in the context of adultery. Think about that. If you want to know what God thinks about no fault divorce and remarriage, then our text will tell you God sees it as adultery. Now in our text, the whole thing, verses 27 through 32, Jesus is talking about the different ways people break the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And here's the point of the text. Here's what he tells us. He tells us that lust and unbiblical divorce violate the seventh commandment. Now, last time we covered verses 27 through 30, which was the lust part of it. This morning we will cover verses 30 and 31 and 32, which is the, the divorce part of it, the unbiblical divorce part of it. Now, as we come to the text, as I've already alluded, we are wandering into a topic that's going to make a lot of people in our culture uncomfortable. And quite honestly, it might make many in our church uncomfortable. And because there is so much to say about this issue, I'm not going to do as big of a review as I normally will. I'm going to try to get to this as fast as I can. So here's what we need to know in terms of review. We are in the Sermon on the Mount, the most profound sermon ever preached. Jesus is showing us at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing us how we can read the Old Testament law and keep it in a way that is far greater than the religious experts of his time. And his point is, it's all about the heart. So what he does is he reads the command, then he explains the intent and, and the true heart of the command, and then he gives us application. So he began with the sixth commandment, do not murder. And he told us it's not only about not killing people. If you're angry or hateful or resentful in your heart, you violated the sixth commandment. And so instead, what you need to do is you need to love, you need to forgive, you need to seek the well-being of others and always work towards reconciliation. That's how you keep the sixth commandment. Jesus then moved into adultery, the seventh commandment, and that's what we started last time. So he quoted it, do not commit adultery. And like murder, what did he show us? He showed us that it's a lot more than just not sleeping with other people. He said, lusting in your heart makes you an adulterer of heart it too violates the seventh commandment. And so just to summarize really quickly, anytime we fantasize in our minds or we watch stuff that we should never see in that vein, then we are committing adultery in the heart. And I would add, whenever you desire someone else's spouse for whatever reason, you are committing adultery in the heart. When you let your heart get captured by the desire for someone other than your spouse, That causes hurt and damage to your spouse, and even worse, you're making a mockery of God. You're tearing the gospel tract that your marriage is supposed to be. In a sense, you're you're tearing it in pieces. So what did Jesus tell us to do? He told us to get radical. Get rid of anything and everything in your life that tempts you to lust and will drive you towards physical adultery. Get rid of it. And so I offered a lot of examples of what getting radical might look like for us. And so if you weren't here, you could check it out on our website, sovereignway.org, or you could look us up on sermonaudio.com and you could find it there and you could get all those. I can't revisit that this morning. But what I do want to say as we progress is that that's not the only thing Jesus has to say about adultery. See, there's another way people violate the seventh commandment. There's a, and this other way could be even sneakier than lusting in the heart. Why? Well, because this other way is something that on the outside, it looks legitimate. It looks legal. And I'm sure you've heard it. Some people foolishly will say that if something's legal, then it's not wrong. Well, it's legal, so it can't be a sin because our society says it's legal. It doesn't work that way. I can legally get drunk out of my mind in my house, but it's still a sin because it violates the Lord's command to not be filled with drunkenness. So just because our society says something's okay, it does not mean it is okay. That is not our standard. Well, what Jesus is going to show us is there is a form of legalized adultery that fools people into thinking they are not committing adultery. It is something that was extremely common in the ancient world, and in the last 50 years, it has become extremely common in our society. And that is frivolous divorce and remarriage. In fact, most people would be shocked if they read Jesus' words in our text this morning. Just the reading of verse 31 and 32 would probably send shivers up a lot of people. And sadly, a lot of Christians are shocked by it. But listen, if we belong to our Lord, if we truly do, then our attitude should be what we sometimes sing. Here's my heart, Lord, speak what is true. And so that is what we want from our Lord. So with that, let's look at what Jesus has to say about this other way to violate the seventh commandment. Look at verse 31. Jesus says this. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now, there's a couple things I wanna quickly point out here. The word also connects this to what he just taught in verses 27 through 30 so if you think back to it he said do not commit adultery you've heard do not commit adultery now he's saying and you've also heard you know whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce and so the point is these are connected the word also means he is still on the same subject we're supposed to take both of these together Remember, he's showing us how to read and interpret the law with two different commandments, but he's using these two commandments here to address one subject, and that one subject is adultery, and he's addressing it from two different angles. And just like with the other commandments, what we're noticing is the same pattern. Jesus quotes it, he quotes the word of God, and then he'll explain it. Now, he's not quoting the Ten Commandments here. The first and second example were from the Ten Commandments. Here he's moving to a different part of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And here's his quotation. Again, he says, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now, it's not an exact quote, but it's a paraphrase that captures exactly what the text says. There is a verse in the Old Testament, a command, that says, If you divorce your wife, you must give her that certificate of divorce. Now, it's very important that we understand the ancient context of marriage. Back then, women did not live their life independently of men. A young girl or a woman was under the protection of her father. As a married woman, she was then under the protection of her husband. That was the social safety net for women. She would not starve because somebody's estate was feeding her, caring for her, and protecting her. And she was part of that estate. And so the idea then is if she marries, she leaves her house and really joins the husband's family. She becomes part of the husband's household and becomes part of that family. So if a man divorced a woman, he was essentially kicking her out of his family, which at this point, that was her only family since she left her original family. When her, husber, when her husband sends her away, she has no social safety net anymore. And people would assume, well, he probably sent her away because of unfaithfulness or adultery. Now, there is debate as to whether or not the certificate of divorce was to let people know that she was not an adulteress or if it was meant to let them know that she is an adulteress. Two different schools of thought on this. By the time of Jesus... Most Jews believed it was the first option. They believed that the certificate was to let society know that she was not an adulteress, and therefore, if you want to marry her, she's fair game. That's what they thought the certificate was about. We're gonna see as we get in the text that Jesus disagrees with that. The way that you protect women is not divorcing her and giving her a certificate. It's being loyal to her and staying married to her. That's the safety net. But people, (coughs) excuse me, were substituting the real safety net, with their misunderstanding of this certificate. And we'll see all of that when we get to it. But you might be wondering, after hearing some of this, like, okay, what does this have to do with adultery? You know, you're talking about divorce and certificates. What does this have to do with adultery? On the surface, it doesn't look like it has anything to do with it. But this is where the historical context becomes really important. People were using the passage from Deuteronomy 24 in a manner that so abused its original intent that its misuse created a practice of legalized adultery. And that is what Jesus is commenting on here. Let me just walk us through this. I'm going to put it as bluntly as I can. We all agree that as Christians, right, we agree that if a man sleeps with a lot of woman, women, he's a scumbucket, right? We agree with that, Right? Say you have an unmarried man that, that sleeps with a dozen women before he gets married. We would say he's immoral. And men, you'd probably keep your daughters away from him, right? Okay, that, He's an immoral guy. And we also, as Christians, would all agree that if a married man sleeps around on his wife with multiple other women, he's, in a, he's a serial adulterer, right? First guy's a serial fornicator. The second guy's a serial adulterer. Not just an adulterer, but a serial one. And we could say the same thing about women. A woman who sleeps with a bunch of men before marriage is immoral. Uh, She's a serial fornicator. And a married woman that has multiple affairs is a serial adulteress. Real simple. Nobody should argue that point. Let me take the serial aspect out of it. If a man sees a beautiful woman, lusts in his heart for her. Let me rephrase. If a married man sees a beautiful woman, lusts in his heart for her, fantasizes about her, and then pursues her. Culminating in an adulterous relationship, what would we call him? An adulterer, right? And if a married woman sees a handsome man or just a man that she thinks is sensitive or deep or romantic or an alpha or whatever it might be, okay, whatever's drawing her, if she lusts for him and pursues him, culminating in an adulterous relationship, what would we call her? An adulteress. So, where am I going with this? A man is married. He sees a beautiful woman, he fantasizes about her, and he sees that she feels the same about him. So he divorces his wife, marries this new woman, and then starts regularly doing with her what he used to do with his wife. You get what I'm saying? How is that different? How is that different than adultery? Notice the entire pathway is the same. Lust, then pursuit, then sex with someone other than your covenant for life partner. And yet ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of people will think the second example is not adultery because a person went to a courthouse and got a piece of paper written by man. That is what is at stake here. As if that paper somehow makes the sin go away. Again, that's like saying being drunk out of my mind is not a sin because it's legal. It just doesn't work. Functionally, if a man or a woman were to do what I just described, they end up sleeping with the exact same amount of people that they would have had they been married or not been married. You get what I'm saying? What I mean by that is if we expand this let's say to the serial divorcer and remarrier, to where let's say you you divorce 3 or 4 times in your life, you've been with as many people as the guy that cheats on his wife 4 times. Or you've been with as many people as the unmarried person who sleeps with three or four people before they get married. It's all the same. Functionally, it's the same level of one flesh union with the same amount of people. But because of a piece of paper, we somehow think it's different. Do you guys see where I'm going with that? Okay, if not, then my fault for not being clear. But to me, it just it seems clear. Frivolous divorce and remarriage causes your life to mirror that of an adulterer or an adulteress. And again, the only thing you have that you could say is different is a piece of paper. This is why Jesus can connect adultery to divorce, even though divorce is inherently different than adultery. Now, we have to ask, why is he saying this? Why is he bringing this up here and now? Well, you have to know something about the Jewish culture of the time. The Pharisees and and anyone who thought like them could think that they dodged the bullet with verses 27 to 30. Namely, that's where Jesus said, if you lust after your heart, you've committed adultery in the heart. You know, they, They could think they dodged that bullet. First, they could say, well, no one knows what's in your heart apart from your actions. Only God knows. So nobody could say, I've really committed adultery with my heart. They can't see into my heart. And also... Also, in in my mind, back then, if I'm a Pharisee, if I want a new woman, it was a simple matter of divorcing my wife and getting the new woman. And it didn't take like a year. All you had to say were the words, I divorce you, and it's official. Then all you had to do is get the new one and say, hey, let's get married. You can do it right away. It, it, It was really, really quick. And so then they could say that, hey, I saw a beautiful woman. I told my wife, I divorce you. So now I'm not committing adultery in my heart. It's just lust. And then when I marry her tomorrow and we do what married people do, it's not adultery. It's within marriage. So they could say amen to everything he said in verses 27 through 30 because they had this loophole. And that is why he then goes straight into divorce and remarriage in verses 31 and 32. He's calling them out. He's letting them know that this doesn't work. Now, during this particular time in Israel... Divorce and remarriage was very, very rampant, and it was just as bad in the surrounding Roman society as well. The only difference was in the Jewish world, only a man could initiate a divorce, which will explain why Jesus words things the way he does, whereas in the Roman world, a woman or a man could initiate it, which will explain why Paul and Mark will word it a little differently. But I'll get to that a little later. Bottom line is this. Among the Israelites, among the Jews, there was a really big debate on this subject, And there were two main schools of thought by two prominent celebrity rabbis. You had Rabbi Hillel and you had Rabbi Shammai. Hillel taught that Deuteronomy 24 allowed a man to divorce his wife for whatever reason he wanted. As long as he gives her a certificate, he could divorce and he could remarry. Rabbi Shammai disagreed. He said that a man could only divorce his wife if there was some sort of sexual impropriety on the part of the wife. So obviously you had one party that was liberal, Hillel's camp, and then you had another party that was more conservative, Shammai's camp. They were a little more strict. Now I just want to ask you guys, I think you'll you'll get this right really quickly, with what you know about sin and what you know about the human heart, which do you think the majority of society is gonna go with? The liberal that says you could do what you want or the stricter guy that says, no, you can't? We're gonna go with the liberal one. Hey, I'm with Hillel. And the majority of the Jewish society was with Hillel. There was a small amount of people that agreed with Shammai. And that's true among the Pharisees as well. Some Pharisees followed Shammai, but the majority of Pharisees followed Hillel. Hillel actually said you could divorce your wife for spoiling your food. And so she didn't cook the meal exactly the way you want it, get rid of her and marry somebody else. And then Rabbi Akiba, Rabbi Akiba of the next generation made it even worse. He said, we don't even have to go to food spoiling. If you see a prettier woman, you could divorce your wife because you found somebody else to be prettier. And Rabbi Akiba's rule reflects the common practice of the time of Jesus. Most of you have heard of the, the ancient uh, historian, Jewish historian, Josephus, right? A lot of us will read his history because it gives us insight to the time of Christ. Josephus divorced his wife and bragged about it. She displeased me. I divorced her. I got somebody new. And he says it so fast in passing. And of course, he was a Pharisee. Well, Well, again, so the Pharisees... Jesus is telling us that our righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees, and the Pharisees could boast that they're not guilty of lusting in their hearts while married because of this loophole, so Jesus is letting them and everyone else know that, no, frivolous divorce and remarriage will make you guilty of adultery. So yes, they are guilty, and if we do the same thing they do, then our righteousness does not surpass theirs, but he told us our righteousness must surpass theirs, You want to know just how pervasive this divorce culture was? In Matthew 19, Jesus is going to get in a debate with some Pharisees over this, some who are in the Hillel camp. And he's going to teach there exactly what he teaches here. He'll add a couple more things, but for the most part, it's exactly the same. The fact that he's debating this isn't the the shocking part. The shocking part was the reaction of the apostles after Jesus laid down this exact truth that he says in our text. Look at what the apostles, the disciples say in Matthew 19.10, once Jesus says, you can only divorce or remarry if you've been cheated on. Here's their response. His disciples said to him, if this is the relationship of a man with his wife like this, then it's better not to marry. You get what they're saying? In other words, Jesus, if you're telling us that once we are married once we're married, we cannot divorce our wives for whatever reason, we might as well not get married. They were so used to the divorce culture of their time that if they could not have the freedom to dump their wives, they were saying it's better if we don't get married. That's what Jesus was up against, even among his own disciples. And that is what we are up against because that's our culture today. So Jesus, he's got no tolerance for this at all. Look at verse 32. He says this. He says, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Pretty clear, pretty straightforward, pretty shocking. Now, there's a lot to unpack from this, but I do want to say something first, just a a little bit of, uh, I don't know, just personal narration here. Since I've been a Christian, I've been bewildered by Christians that act as if they've never seen this verse, or that they read it and it cannot mean what it says. Why? Well, because I've divorced, I've remarried after being a Christian. Surely Jesus wouldn't call me uh, an adulterer, would he? Or or it can't mean this because where's the grace? But I want you to think about that for a second. What if a self-professed Christian was sleeping with his neighbor's wife every day and you told him, repent, Because adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if he responds to that, well, where's the grace? Would you accept that argument? Would it make any sense to you? Would that be a biblical response? Would you believe that God's commands and warnings are meaningless? And as long as we say we believe in Jesus, we can murder people and we could commit adultery and we could commit fraud and never repent of it. Because what about grace? Is that what grace is? Is that what grace does? Yes, listen, grace is amazing. Grace is from God. It's favor from God that you don't deserve. But that favor from God, that grace, it changes us. It doesn't leave us in that state. It convicts us. If somebody forever justifies their sin, they're probably not saved by grace because grace would never leave them like that. Eventually, God's word is gonna pierce your heart. You're gonna be like, oh, I'm wrong on this. And then there's gonna be a war. And then you're going to want to repent. And, and, you know, there's going to be a battle, but that's the sign of of grace. The person who's callous and saying, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want to do and God's got to save me because I raised my hand and said a prayer. That's not Christianity. And that is not grace. And so it's just one thing we have to keep in mind. If Jesus says frivolous divorce and remarriage equals adultery, then we we have to agree with him because he's the Lord. We have to take him at his word. Remember, the only difference between the married man sleeping with another woman and the man that divorces his wife to marry another woman, the only difference is the piece of paper. So we have to treat both of these like Jesus does. Now, one reason it, this whole topic bewilders me is, especially the confusion over this topic, is because I figured this out after only being a Christian for two weeks. Most of you know I wasn't raised in the church. I'm Jewish, and we were secular Jews. Um, I never read the Bible day in my life. Looked at some of the pictures in a children's Bible and wondered why Satan was red, you know. But but apart from that, um, I had no knowledge of this. But I became a Christian, got baptized at seventeen. Got my first Bible given to me by, by the church that baptized me. And I just started reading it, 10 chapters a day. Started with Genesis, I'm like, I love this. And then got to Exodus, I love this. And it took less than two weeks. Then I got to Leviticus, I'm like, where am I? And, <laughs> and the thing is, I've since come to believe that Leviticus is one of the most important books of the Bible, but at that time, I just couldn't get it. So what did I do? I'm like, well, I'm a Christian, I'm just going to skip to the New Testament, And what's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. And if I'm reading 10 chapters a day, and this is in chapter 5, and my first day in the New Testament, I came across this. Again, I'd been a Christian probably less than 14 days. And when I read this, I remember it was like a gut punch to me because I had so many friends whose parents were, were divorced and remarried over issues other than sexual immorality. I had a neighbor across the street who I thought was this great Christian. She was this, this sweet older lady, um, you know, always like praying and writing prayers down. And, but then I'm like, but wait, she's divorced and remarried, and it wasn't for adultery. And then also, she didn't go to any church. It was one of those, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I do things completely on my own. And I'd just been a Christian for two weeks. This was all very, very confusing to me. So at first, you know, not being refined in my thinking, I thought all these people were intentionally disobeying Jesus. I'm like, what's wrong with them, you know? Again, a 17-year-old with no tact. To me, it didn't seem possible that they didn't know about this passage because I came across it within 15 minutes of reading the New Testament. But as I've grown older, I've come to learn that indeed there are a lot of people unaware of this passage. And what that means is they haven't even read 15 minutes into the New Testament. Hosea 4.6 should be a haunting verse. This is what God says of Old Testament Israel. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And I believe that passage applies to the church, especially when it comes to things like this. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. This is why we have to be in the word of God. And believe me, so badly, I want to find some sort of little encouragement I could throw out right after saying all that, but I can't think of anything. Now, of course, we'll have some encouragement at the end, um, but, but if I'm taking God's word and his warning seriously in this situation, and the fact that a lot of Christians act like the world on this and seem unaware of this passage, what encouragement could, could I give? Now, even as I say that, because I, I know some people might be squirming and that's not my goal, okay? So what I want you to know is that, is that if, as a Christian, you have violated Christ's command here, you are not doomed, Okay, I'm gonna come back to that near the end. So I'll let you squirm until the end. But, but the thing is, I think it's important that I explain this verse in its fullness before um, I come back to that. So following Jesus's regular pattern, he quotes the law, he quotes that, that passage from Deuteronomy, and then he says, but I tell you, which is something that only the Messiah could do, he's letting us know that there's more to this law that they are not seeing. And so what he's gonna show us is that the heart of this law in Deuteronomy 24 was not to open up the door for divorce, but to close it because the society already opened it up. He's showing that, no, this very text you're reading was meant to close it, not open it. It was to restrict it, not expand it. And so again, what does he say? He says, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And before I even start explaining that, some people might be like, Jesus, is so unfair here targeting the women, not the men. The man divorces her, and it makes her an adulteress. Well, listen, in Mark, and there's a reason why it's this way, and I'll explain it, but in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, Jesus makes it very clear here. It hits both. It says, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery, okay? Very clear there. And whenever Paul brings this up, as we'll see a little later, he also applies it to both sides. So why in Matthew does he say it in a way that the husband's divorce makes the wife an adulteress? Remember, in Jewish society, only men could file for divorce. So that is why he's, he's talking about it this way. Um, and so he's, he's focusing on the husbands because of that. He's saying if you divorce your wife. You jerk, you're putting her in a position. Well, he didn't say you jerk, but he's saying if you divorce your wife, you're putting her in a position where she then commits adultery if she remarries because she doesn't want to starve or whatever. And later, Jesus in Matthew, when he's having the same debate, he's also going to say in husband, by doing this, you too are committing adultery, not just her. In Matthew 19 verse 9, he says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So again, both end up, end up guilty, and I'll explain why a little later. But in Matthew, the emphasis, again, is on the husband because only he could do the divorcing. Um, but he's showing us that both are made adulterers in this case. In Mark's passage, we have to remember the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome to Romans, and Roman women could initiate divorce. And so that's why Paul or Mark is just saying, well, look, what Jesus means is whoever divorces and remarries for any reason other than this, they're, they're, they're going to be in, in trouble. Um, so if a divorcing man or if a man divorcing his wife leads to a certain result, the same thing's true. If a divorcing woman or if a woman divorces her husband, it leads to the same result. But all that poses a question. Why does a divorce and remarriage make both the husband and the wife Guilty of adultery. I'm going to keep you in suspense. I'm going to answer this a little later. Because there's, there's three issues I have to answer first before we can make sense out of that. And so there's a phrase. Actually, one word in the Greek, two in the English. Sexual immorality. In verse 32. There are three issues that revolve around this word. And only once we understand those, then can I come back and answer this question. So, the first thing I want to state about this phrase, sexual immorality is that this is an exception clause. It's an exception clause. Jesus says that everyone who divorces his wife, quote, except in a case of sexual immorality, he's saying those people then are guilty of adultery. But what that means is if he divorces because of sexual immorality, then he can remarry. This is an exception clause. Okay, that's my point. Now, the, the woman in this case who committed the adultery, she cannot remarry. Because, and no one's allowed to marry her because she has forfeited her right due to unfaithfulness. But if the victim wants to remarry, they can. That's what the Lord is teaching. And and, and the reverse is true in our society as well. Just like the Roman society, women could initiate divorce. So if your husband cheats on you, you can divorce and you can remarry. But he must remain single. Anyone who then marries him commits adultery with him. That's the force of what Jesus is teaching here. Now, one thing that blows my mind is there's some Christians that try to say Jesus isn't giving an exception here. They want to make this harder than it has to be. They claim that, well, Matthew's the only one that puts this exception. Mark and Luke don't put this exception. Let me ask you something. How many times does the Bible have to say something for it to be true? Once. If we believe every letter and every stroke of a letter is inspired by God, then we should never dismiss something in the Bible by saying, well, it only says it once. That's no respect for the word of God. And furthermore, not only does Matthew offer this once, he offers it twice, and Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is going to offer a second exception, okay? And so the reason I say all this is the Bible means to protect the innocent party. If a spouse is faithful, but their partner is not, why would a just and holy God punish the innocent spouse for the sins of the other? Why would God say you have to stay in this situation and just let them cheat on you? Or if they abandon you, well, you got to stay single because they abandon you, when you're not the one who did anything wrong there. See, that's legalism when people say that. And legalism really, truly does put a yoke on people, and it weighs down the innocent. That's why I can't stand legalism. If you are a victim of sexual infidelity in your marriage, then you are allowed to divorce and remarry. Now, the Jews and the Romans of this time said you have to divorce if they cheat on you. It's law. If they cheat on you, you are required to divorce them. Jesus does not say that. He gives you the option to divorce and remarry, but he does not force you to do it. The Bible always allows for reconciliation. And reconciliation is the only hope for the guilty party, right? Because if the victim divorces, and remarries, then the guilty party has to remain single. And if he is truly repentant for his sin, then pleasing God will be far more important to him than his desire to remarry. It's that simple, okay? Some of our actions have lifelong consequences. And I know as Americans, we don't like to hear that. Christians in other parts of the world have no problem with that concept. Let me give you an example of a lifelong consequence. As a pastor If I commit adultery or embezzlement, I am using this position of leadership that God gave me over his household to seduce women and steal money. I am forever disqualified for being a pastor. Even if I repent, I cannot be a pastor again. I can serve in other ways, but I could not be a pastor, right? Because it was in this position that I did that. That's a lifelong consequence that I would have to deal with. Well, this is the same thing. There's some things that we do that carry a lifetime consequence. So if you're thinking about cheating on your spouse and you do it and then they leave you, you're not a victim if you have to remain single for the rest of your life. That is a consequence of your deliberate sin, especially after Jesus has warned you. It's that simple. Okay. We are to honor God. And again, some sins have these long consequences. And there's one more thing I want to say about this as well. Because this doesn't happen often, but when it does it, it just doesn't make any sense. If your spouse cheats on you and you decide not to divorce, then you need to live as a married couple. You just do. You can't separate and stay in a status of marriage and yet live like you're divorced. Why? Because the Bible gives so many commands to husbands and wives in marriage. And you cannot fulfill those commands to each other if you're acting like you're divorced. You are breaking a host of laws. A host of commands just by saying, well, we're staying married in name, but we're separate in life. No, you're either married and you reconcile or you divorce and go your separate ways. But you can't have this little in-between unbiblical limbo where you're actually breaking a lot of God's commands. So anyhow, getting back to sexual immorality, I've only covered the first issue of it. It's an exception clause to protect the innocent party. The second issue that we need to understand as it relates to this word sexual immorality is what does it mean? Well, this is pretty easy. The Greek word is porneia. And I'm sure you could tell that the word pornography later was built off of this Greek word, but the Greek word doesn't mean pornography. It's just later people made this English word off of this Greek word. The Greek word porneia has a much bigger and more general meaning than that. If you were to take the time to read Leviticus chapter 18, I know Leviticus, but chapter 18 verses 1 through 23 God gives a big list of sexual sins that are prohibited to his people. Now, most of them are like 20 different ways to commit incest. Just any which way, any which direction in your family tree, God's like, no, 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 okay? So incest is prohibited. Then after all the incest is brought up, adultery is forbidden. And after adultery is forbidden, homosexuality is forbidden. And then after that, bestiality is forbidden. The word porneia is, came to be a summary word, that means that whole list. Anything on that list is pornéa. Anything, okay? And, of course, there's, there's other uses of the word that just go to show that any sexual union outside of marriage is pornéa. Pretty much the one, so being with a prostitute or whatever, uh, the one flesh union, okay, the sexual act is what causes a one flesh moment or union. We saw that last week in 1 Corinthians 6. Any one fleshness with somebody other than your married spouse is porneia. Okay, so this word sexual immorality means that. It means that. So often you'll hear people say that, well, Jesus allows you to divorce and remarry if your spouse commits adultery. But that's actually not precisely what he says. He says you could divorce and remarry if your spouse commits adultery porneia, sexual immorality. Adultery is just one of them on that list. So that's true, but it's not only adultery. It's important to know this because somebody could play games with you. They could say, well, I didn't commit adultery. I didn't sleep with another man's wife. It was just incest or it was just homosexuality. You know, and I'm not even gonna go with one of the other ones mentioned in, in, in Leviticus. So the fact is Jesus is saying, no, any of those, if any of those happen, you're able to divorce and remarry. So pretty much Jesus' exception clause says if your spouse has conjugal unions with any living person or thing other than you, then you have the right to divorce and remarry. But please understand this. porneia refers to sex, not just lust. And the reason I have to say this is you cannot divorce your spouse for lusting in his or her heart, okay? Because some people will try to turn this text on its head. You know, they'll say, well, Jesus just said you committed adultery in your heart. Therefore, I could divorce and remarry you because I saw you looking at that lady. I'm free. That's not what this is saying. OK, the, the, the <clears throat> adultery in the heart and the act of adultery are not identical. Both violate the seventh commandment, but only the one flesh thing only happens when there's the physical act of adultery. It's the one fleshness that's porneia. So please understand, it is absurd to read Jesus' statement here that limits divorce and remarriage only to sexual immorality. But then to turn it on its head and say, well, no, actually, we could divorce and remarry if we just lust, because then we all could divorce and remarry. Every single one of us has lusted in our hearts. And if you say you haven't, you're lying. Okay, And so the point is, Jesus is telling us this to limit divorce to one thing, not to open it up to everything. And yet I have heard people use this. There was a co-worker that was divorcing uh, her husband for irreconcilable differences. And another co-worker was wanting to move in on her. And another co-worker was telling her she shouldn't do this because of this verse. But then that co-worker wanting to move on said, well, lust in the hearts, adultery, we're all adulterers. And he used it that way and she divorced and he ended up marrying her. So people do try to turn this on its head. And the guy's got a PhD in theology, just to let you know. He knew exactly what he was doing. Anyhow, so that's the that's the second. Okay, that, that's the second thing. Sexual immorality, pornea just means all those things in Leviticus. Now, the third issue revolving around this word, porneia, or sexual immorality, is Jesus is telling us with this word exactly what Moses meant in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. So I'm going to read that whole passage. This is the foundational passage for the rest of the Bible about divorce and remarriage. Every other passage that mentions it is in some way alluding back to this passage. And I've underlined some words for us. To, to explain some things as I go along. Okay, so here's what Moses writes. He says, if a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. If after leaving his house, she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the second man hates her, writes her a divorce certificate, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies... The first husband who sent her away may not marry her again after she has been defiled because that would be detestable to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, I want us to notice some key parts of this. I'll keep coming back to these these underlined words. Hillel, if I put it back up for a second, he honed in only on that first underlined word, displeasing. So what Hillel said is like, oh. If she displeases you for any reason, because it says displeasing, you may give her the certificate of divorce. Now, Shammai disagreed because he said there's another word after displeasing, and it is the word because. Okay, the because lets you know it's not for just any reason. Okay, it's not just because she displeases me, it's because. And then after because, there's another word, because he found something indecent. So the only reason Moses is permitting this is because of the displeasure caused by finding something indecent in her. Now, the problem with the text is this word indecent is kind of ambiguous. It's a Hebrew word that's got a wide range of possible definitions. So it definitely does mean sexual sin, but it could also mean lesser things. The context is what normally would let you know. But in this case, the context doesn't i think it gives enough but somebody could argue that it doesn't give enough details so Shemai looks at this and says, look, divorce is only permittable if she cheats on her husband or if she does something sexually inappropriate. And, and people asked him, okay, well, what would be inappropriate besides cheating? He said, well, if she shows her armpits in public, she's out. You know, he, he did. No joke. He said, if she's out there rolling rope and her armpits are exposed, you could divorce her because that is, that is disrespectful to her husband. And, you know, I, I guess the armpits and there's probably, you probably see more than you want to. Uh, and so... So the point is, Shemaiah's like you could divorce over that. That was the conservative position of that day, but it was not conservative enough for Jesus. Your wife showing a little extra skin is not the same as the one flesh act of adultery or sexual immorality. Therefore, that does not qualify for divorce. So even the conservatives were a little too light there. Now, Jesus telling everyone, That He's telling everyone here then that the word indecent, he's telling you what it means. It means pornea. Pornea. He's like, here's what Moses meant when he said if he finds something indecent in her, I'm telling you, any reason other than sexual immorality is wrong. Oh, so what you're telling us, Jesus, then, is you are now solving our argument. What did Moses mean by this word? You're saying pornea. And that's it. Christ, as the Messiah, is the definitive teacher of the law. So he's able to say, of all the possible definitions, this is the one. And this was the expectation of the Jews. When Messiah comes, he will clear up our debates and disagreements about the law. Messiah showed up and he did that. Sadly, Jews historically after this have gone the opposite way. They've sided with Hillel and they've even gone far beyond Hillel in their liberalness. But Jesus is pointing out the heart of the commandment here is there has to be a violation of the marriage covenant through sexual sin. That is the indecent thing that Moses is mentioning. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, hold on a second. I thought that if people committed adultery in the Old Testament, they were supposed to be executed. That is true. But it seems that the Old Testament also allowed husbands to forego that. Because there are husbands throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament that don't have their spouses executed. Even King David didn't get executed for it. And then just think back to the beginning of Matthew when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, even though it's with the Son of God in her womb through the Holy Spirit, his thought was, she cheated on me. She could have been executed. But what did it say? He's a righteous man and he wanted to um, not disgrace her, to take care of this quietly. So knowing then that sometimes a woman would not be executed, this law allowed for a certificate of divorce. That's where that comes into this. And so if she marries someone else, God made it clear here. He says, okay, you give her the certificate. If she goes and gets with someone else, the first husband can never take her back. It calls it an abomination. Why? Go back to the last underlined word. It says, because she has been defiled. I think that is the clue that lets us know this is pornea. Okay, she's been defiled. If the divorce was not caused by sexual immorality, then why would Moses say she's in a defiled state? She's defiled due to the sexual immorality. Now, the husband has the option to work it out with her. And stay married. But if he gives her that certificate, she is not supposed to remarry. The one who then marries her, knowing this about her, is committing adultery with her. And if that happens, Moses says she can never be reconciled to her original husband. Once she gets with the second guy, it is impossible to have a reconciliation here. So what we're having Jesus do here is he is settling what this law really means by picking up on the clues that were in the text all along. And and even though in Jewish culture of his time, the divorce certificate was being used as a protection for women, the original intent of the certificate was actually to let everyone know she's defiled due to some evil, some indecent um, pornea that she did. And that way, no one else would marry her and unwittingly be guilty of adultery with her. The protection for women is, is again, not cheating on each other and husbands staying loyal to their, lives, their wives for their whole life. That's how you protect people. But hard hearts twisted the law. And Jesus will say that much in chapter 19. Now, our deep dive into Deuteronomy 24 serves two purposes for us. First, it is the verse that Jesus is quoting here, so it's good for us to take that look at it. It was important to see what it means, what it's saying. But the second reason we looked at it is Deuteronomy 24 answers that question I brought up earlier. Why does divorce and remarriage, except in the case of sexual immorality, why does that lead to the new marriages being adulterous? Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 19, 19 What God brings together Man must not separate. So when a man and a woman sinfully separate a marriage, okay, they're not using the exception clause, they sinfully separate a marriage, there's only one way they could repent. They have to reconcile with each other. They have to get back with each other. But once they go and get with someone else, according to Moses, now they can't reconcile. They are forbidden to come back together. Again, it is the, 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 the one flesh act with someone else, that will forever dissolve their marriage because now they're one flesh with another person. Now, if you're a careful thinker, you're saying, okay, hold on though, hold on. I have a problem with this and it's okay. You might be thinking if a man though is married and he cheats on his wife, he's done a one flesh thing with this mistress, but they're still, you're saying they're still able to reconcile. Yes, yes. But then you're saying, "Well, wait, if he divorces her though, right? And then goes and does the same thing, they can't ever get back together. Yes. Well, why? It's because a divorce actually does terminate the marriage. In the first case, they weren't divorced. They were still in the state of marriage. But once you divorce, you have terminated the marriage. Some people will say, yeah, but they're still married in the eyes of God. Where does it say that? Jesus, in John 4, verse 18, tells the woman at the well, you have had five husbands, and the guy you're with is not your husband. What does that tell you? He counted the five as husbands. But something was unique about the sixth case to where Jesus is like, no, nah, this guy's not a husband. But the point is, the marriages, even though sinful, were still called marriages. Now, the reason those marriages are adulterous is because God teaches that after you divorce, your only option for repentance is reconciliation with your spouse. When you choose to marry someone else, and it is a real marriage, but when you choose that, you have now made reconciliation impossible. And so what this means is sexually speaking, even after you divorce, if the divorce is for a frivolous reason, you are still only allowed to have conjugal unions with that one person, your ex-spouse, but you can't have it anymore because you're not married to the person. That would be fornication. If you want that one flesh union, then what do you have to do? Remarry. You got to marry her again. You got to make this right. You got to fix it. That's the point because you are obligated to that person for life. It's only death that would break that obligation. But if you go and marry someone else and have that kind of union in that kind of way, then you've committed that adultery as a matter of fact, even if it's not by a matter of the law. And this is why Jesus is saying this frivolous divorce makes you both adulterers because now you can't make right what you have wronged. In Romans, Paul teaches us that the church as the church, that we're not under the law in the same way the Old Testament saints are. I think I've already shown that we still do keep the law, but the relationship's a little different. And Paul uses remarriage as the example. And you can notice that he's totally pulling from Deuteronomy 24 in this. Look what Paul says in Romans 7.3. He says, so then, speaking of a wife, if she is married to another man, so he's calling it a marriage. If she is married to another man while her husband is still living, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. Then if she's married, if she's married to another man, she is not an adulteress. The fact That she's married, uses the word, to another man while her husband is still alive. Means that that first marriage was terminated in divorce. That's the only way she could remarry this other person. And he calls the second marriage a marriage, but he says it's adulterous. That's the key that I want you to see. But if the husband died before any of that happened, well then, she wouldn't be adulterous. It's clear he's basing these details on Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. And in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11, he's going to uh, say something similar. This is a very, I think, key text for the church on this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. He says, To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, a lot of times people get hung up on him saying, well, I'm not saying this. The Lord is saying this. All he means by that is he's referring to what Jesus is teaching in our text. Okay, Jesus gave public teaching on marriage. And Paul is saying that, listen, what I'm telling you right now is what the Lord taught in public. So it's not me saying it. This is what we all know that Jesus already said. And what did he say? That a wife must not leave her husband. A husband must not leave his wife. But if that happens, he says they must remain unmarried. Why? Because, again, he says so that they could be reconciled. They must be reconciled to each other. The moment she gets with someone else, you go back to what he said in Romans, she or he are guilty of adultery. And notice that Paul makes it clear. This is a command from the Lord. I'll put it back up again. He says that to the married, I give this command. Oh, by the way, it's Jesus's command. You don't leave each other. That's the command. And the reason I bring that up is some people read this as, well, it says we can leave each other, we just have to remain unmarried, and I, I just fell out of love with this person. I could be alone for the rest of my life. Who cares how this affects them? That is not what this is saying. The command is don't leave each other. But if you sin and leave each other, then you have to stay single for the reconciliation. And I'll tell you something, if you frivolously leave each other in a church like this, you are violating the command, there will be Matthew 18. We're not just gonna allow something like that to continue because it's not right, okay? And so the point is they must not leave each other. If they do, don't touch nobody else because you gotta reconcile. That's the point. That is the only way to repent and reconcile here. Any other relationship is adulterous. So I think it's clear when we look at all that. The Bible speaks with only one voice on this subject. Divorce and remarriage when it's no fault, Okay, causes one to break the seventh commandment for every reason we've seen this morning. Jesus gives the one exception, sexual immorality, because that was the true intent of Deuteronomy 24. And then as I mentioned earlier, Paul gives one more exception that I do need to bring up: 1 Corinthians 7:15. He a new situation arrived. When Jesus taught the crowds, everybody was part of the covenant. He's teaching Israel. But With his death, burial, and resurrection and the birth of the church, he sends us out into the world. Now it's possible you have two pagans, one hears the gospel, gets saved, but the spouse doesn't. So now in a single household, you have one person who's part of the covenant and another person who's not. That raises a new question, and that's what Paul is answering here in 1 Corinthians 7.15. If you're the believer, you stay loyal to your unbelieving spouse, but if they leave, you're not bound. He says, if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound. The marriage is done. He's not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So in that case, you could remarry because you were abandoned by an unbeliever. So I want to be clear on this. Sexual immorality and being abandoned by an unbeliever are the only two legitimate reasons a person could divorce and remarry. Irreconcilable differences is not a valid reason. You burnt my toast? Got to live with it, okay? You're not happy? That's not a valid reason. These are just manifestations of the narcissistic self-worship that our society tries to brainwash us with. If your spouse is mean at times, because we all can be mean at times with our words, well, that doesn't cut it either. Now, what if there's physical abuse? If there's physical abuse, the Bible does provide protection. First, a crime has happened. The cops should be called. Okay, Justice should be done. Also, we're commanded to flee persecution. You don't have to stay in it. You could flee to the physical safety and then let the courts take their their part and let the church do its part if the person says he's a believer and does not repent he has created a situation where a you cannot go back because he's keeping the situation dangerous for you he has functionally abandoned you and if he won't repent we have to excommunicate him which declares him as an unbeliever see where i'm going with this That he's now declared an unbeliever, he's functionally abandoned you, you are no longer bound in that case. It's not because of the abuse, it's because of the abandonment. That is why you would be able to divorce and remarry. If he was an unbeliever to begin with, well then he's abandoned you by not making a situation that you could safely live in. So again, all that falls under Paul's exception. Now, one question people ask is, well wait a second, what if I want to work my marriage out? but my spouse leaves me for selfish reasons. Well, the Bible commands you to stay single so that you could reconcile. But if it's an unbeliever, it just told you you're not bound, right? But then you're thinking, okay, but I'm married to somebody who says he or she is a believer, and they're just going to bounce on me. So what do I do in this case? Well, the person has sinned, has sinned by violating the Lord's command not to separate, not to divorce. So the church would do the Matthew 18 process, and if at the end of it the so called believer refuses to repent, again, excommunication, which is effectually declaring him an unbeliever, now it's an unbeliever that's abandoned you. You see what I'm saying with that? So that's how it works, okay? It's pretty, pretty simple. Um, and so, bottom line is this. If a person, oh, and just one more thing to add to that. If a so-called believer is leaving you, this person's not going to stay single their whole life. Either they're going to get with somebody else, and then you could leave them for Jesus's exception clause, or we excommunicate them first, and you get to leave them for Paul's exception clause. My point is, either way, the Bible always looks after the innocent victim. Someone else's sin is not going to leave you in a singleness limbo. That's what I want to encourage you with, because sometimes people would look at this and be like, oh, man. I'm in trouble because of somebody else's sin. No. Now, all that to say, there's just one last thing to address. What if you have been divorced and remarried? Are you perpetually an adulterer that is doomed to the lake of fire? Well, first, let me answer this the easy way. If all that happened when you were an unbeliever, it was washed away when you became a Christian, so I wouldn't worry about it. But what if this happened while you were a Christian? Well, it's more complicated. But in short, no, you are not doomed. Have you created a mess? Yes. Is it tough to untangle? Yes. But just to simplify this, we need to ask, what does it mean to repent of the sin? Well, again, what does Moses say? If you divorce, but neither of you have been remarried, you repent by getting back together. That's simple. But if either of you have remarried, you have now committed an adulterous act with the new marriage, you can't reconcile the first marriage. So what do you do? Because that kind of repentance is now off the table. Well, because again, you can't reconcile to the first spouse. So we have to ask, what does repentance look like in that case? Well, remember what repentance is. Repentance is three things together. It's changing your mind, changing your emotions or feelings, and changing your direction. Those three changes. So changing your mind first means you agree with God. If he says your remarriage was a sin... Then it was a sin and you don't make excuses. You're like, God, you're right. I was wrong. You don't fight him. Changing your feelings means you're brokenhearted over the sin. You feel bad about it. It's not just an intellectual acknowledgement that you're wrong. Well, yeah, I was wrong, but I don't feel anything over it. No, it, you got to mourn your sin. There's emotional regret. There's that, that, that sinking feeling in your heart that if I could do it all over, I would not have done this again. I would have done this the right way. Okay, And so that's the changing the feelings. And then changing your direction is where you do something about it. It's not just internal, it's external. You can't remarry the first spouse because they've now got with somebody else or you have. So how do you repent in that case? Well, first you apologize to the person by leaving you or agreeing to your leaving of me. We've sinned against the Lord and we've sinned against each other and now we've created a mess where we can't get back together. But the least we could do is acknowledge our sin. We can acknowledge our sin. Will you forgive me for this? And of course, that presupposes you've already asked God for your forgiveness or for his forgiveness. Bottom line is that's all you could do in this case to repent. So then that poses the question, okay, I've done that, let's say, am I now required to leave my current marriage? No, because even though the current marriage when you entered it was adulterous, the Bible still calls it a marriage. And so now you've repented, you've been forgiven of that adultery status. What remains now is just the marriage. So all the commands that apply to marriage command here. You have to be a loving and faithful spouse. And imagine the extra evil that would happen if you now abandon the spouse and the kids with that spouse. You've now done more sin than the marriage itself was. Remember, David was able to stay married to Bathsheba and God brought the next king, Solomon, out of that. So God is able to redeem the things that we mess up. But with that, let me give a warning. If you divorced your spouse for a reason not authorized in scripture and you haven't repented, repent. If right now you're contemplating it, Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you'll sin now and repent later. Because I know people who think that way. Well, now that I've heard this, well, I'm going to sin now. And then I could repent later because he just told me I could repent later. Listen, that is high-handed, presumptuous sin. If you belong to God, obey him first. Because if you raise your fist against the Almighty and say, I'm going to marry this other person, even though Jesus told me I can't, then you violated the first commandment. He says, have no other God before me. And you say, I do have a God before you. It's me. Because you said I can't. I say I can. That's violating the first commandment. You've also violated the second commandment. Don't make idols because you've made this other person or this marriage an idol. You violated the seventh commandment in that case because your new marriage is adulterous. You violated the tenth commandment because you're coveting something forbidden to you. And honestly, I think you've also violated the eighth commandment because you're stealing for yourself something that was not yours. To be okay with a blatant, high-handed rebellion against God where I'm going to conspire to break five of the ten commandments in one act on this idea that once I get what I want, then I can repent later... I'm just saying that sounds pretty dangerous and crazy to me. If you love God with all your heart, mind, and strength, then commit to obeying him in the situation you are right now. Now, if you ignore this warning and go forward with the sinful intentions, I do pray in the future that your repentance would be real. I don't want to see you in the lake of fire. But again, if you're planning on sinning now and repenting later, it does call into question that later repentance. What's to say five years later you you want something else God forbids? And you're gonna go through the same thing again. If you wanna know that you have a repentant heart, then repent right now. Not a future repentance after you've already sinned. Repentance is the commitment that if I could do it all over again, I would do this right and not wrong. If you're planning to do wrong, there's not repentance there. So that warning, I do pray people will hear that warning. Christians, as I conclude, we need to uphold marriage. We need to guard it with everything we have. Remember what I said last time. Marriage is a gospel tract. It's an object lesson that God baked into creation itself so that when we tell unbelievers the good news of Jesus, marriage is an analogy that we could point to. The Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve. It ends with a marriage, Christ and his church. Jesus left heaven to seek us out and to save us. He laid down his life for us so that we would be saved. He loved us, he gave himself to us so that he could present us to the Father without blemish. Likewise, husbands, in the same way, we're to lay down our lives for our wives, not divorce them. Okay, And the church, as the church follows and loves Christ, wives are to follow and respect their husbands, not divorce them. Marriage is a beautiful picture of salvation. And that's why Satan and his puppets are trying to destroy marriage with adultery, and they're trying to destroy marriage with frivolous divorce or unbiblical divorce. They're promoting lust. They're promoting easy divorce. That way, the picture of the gospel is destroyed, and we have a harder time telling people about the good news. So the question is, what can we do about it? What must we do about it? Well, first, hold a marriage in high esteem. That's first and foremost. Hold it in high esteem. Hold your marriage in high esteem. Fight for your marriage. Don't be lazy with your marriage. Do the things God commands you to do within your marriage. Fight for it. It's hard. Of course it's hard. It's two sinners being with each other. But fight for it. That's what we're supposed to do. Contend for it in your house. Contend for it before your kids. As a church, contend for marriage in the church. We don't just let each other walk away from from their their oaths in marriage. So we contend for it in the church. And then, of course, loved ones, we've got to contend for it in society. We've got to vote for the the people who are going to promote it. So we have to contend for marriage. Contend for it. That's what we're called to do. And so may we be faithful to that call. And for any unbelievers here, you might think that Jesus is too extreme here. But listen, he's the one who made us. He's God. He's God. He's the second person of the Trinity, and he became a man 2,000 years ago to to be the God-man so that he could reconcile God and man back together. Because as the God-man, he's the only one who can. He could bring us back into peace. Because with our sin, we are at war with him. He, above everybody else, knows what marriage is supposed to be like. And because our society has rejected his word, we now have decades of statistics that show the result of our folly. So open your eyes, see what's clear, listen to the Lord. You know he's right. And even more so, you know that you got a bigger problem than marriage and, and divorce, you're a sinner. Just like the rest of us, you've committed trillions of sins if we're going to add your thoughts and your actions together. And a day is coming where you will stand before the king in his glory and the books will be opened and all your sins will be read back to you. There will be no argument left in your mouth that you don't deserve the condemnation that God says you deserve. So you need a savior and Jesus is that savior. He offers that salvation. He entered his own creation as a man to live the perfect life, to give us the credit of that perfect righteousness. And then all those trillions of sins, he takes into his account. He was nailed to the cross and he drank the father's wrath for us. So if you turn from your sins and believe on the Lord whom God rose from the dead, truly believe and truly surrender, all your sins are forgiven. You're credited with his righteousness and you are saved and you become a new creature. And so that is what we're calling on you to do. Don't walk out of here still in your sin. That would be folly. Repent, turn to Jesus, and be saved. Now, we're gonna pray to end the sermon and then get ready for the Lord's Supper. You could say your own prayer to God that you're turning from your sins and turning to him. And that's what I would ask you to do. And then if you do that and you mean it, you're saved. Then come talk to me afterwards and we'll tell you uh, what comes next. With that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, If I were to have preached this 60 years ago, which I wasn't alive, but if I was, this would have been a lot shorter of a sermon. But Lord, you know the the culture we live in now, and you know how it's affected your church. So I pray, Lord, that the word has been rightly divided, um, and I just pray we take it to heart so that we know how important it is to contend for our marriages and to teach our kids to contend for marriage, and really to be that witness to the society.